This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to episode 101 of the Before the Millions podcast. Today, we dive into an organically grown family business. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Hey, what's up? What's going on, BTM tribe? We're back for another installment, guys. The saga continues and we are due for an episode because last week I did not put out an episode because the week before we just came out with our 100th episode. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 101. And again, guys, the saga continues, and I can't wait to get to episode 200. On today's episode, we are speaking to Mrs. Panji Barnes. And Panji is a real estate investor that was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. At the age of 20, in college, she decided to take an interest in real estate. And her first deal wasn't all that successful. In fact, instead of making money on a flip, she had to pay money. Yeah, it wasn't a good deal, but luckily she stuck through it. And uh, we're gonna talk all about her story and why and how she stuck through it and what she's doing these days. I mean, guys, Panji has two kids and her ultimate lifestyle design, her ultimate lifestyle dream is to be able to, is to be present, super present in her kids' lives as they grow up. So you talk about jujitsu lessons, you talk about going to PTA meetings, you talk about being on the board, you talk about going to all the recitals, picking kids up from school, dropping in for lunch, all that good stuff, right? A lot of parents either have to alternate those roles or have their kids not go to those types of things or miss out on those types of events or hire somebody to take care of those tasks for them or attend, but few and far between. And this is often due to the hectic schedule because we're trying to do so much to provide for our loved ones, so much to provide for our kids. But what Panji figured out through real estate investing is that she can actually provide for her kids in an even better capacity when she started investing in herself and she started investing in a business that makes money for her while she sleeps so that she no longer has to worry about, well, I only get to see my son or my daughter for two hours after school, right before they go to bed. She's super present in her kids' lives and she's going to tell you guys exactly how she's been able to build up her portfolio to make that happen. So we're going to talk about partnering, guys, like what you should look for in a partner, if you should partner, and more specifically, how to partner with your spouse. You know, oftentimes we see that it's one spouse or another that's in real estate and the other one is just down for the ride. 
Like they were that support system. It's not often that we see that both partners are in real estate and the dichotomy of that relationship and often how tasks and roles are going to be divvied up. So we're going to talk about that on today's show. We're also going to talk about tenant friendly geographies. We're also going to talk about why Panji decided to drop out of law school. We're going to talk about staging property and how Panji got her first start in real estate, really just staging other people's property. So there's a ton on today's episode. I can't wait to get into it. I am currently in Houston, Texas, and spring is full fledged upon us and summer is right around the corner. I'm so happy to be settled in for the next few weeks. No travel. Hey, look, a few reviews came through the pipeline this week. So I want to go ahead and give a quick shout out to Mrs. Bridget Ebner. And Bridget says, fantastic content, great questions and insight on how to take life and business to the next level. Thank you so much, Bridget, for your wonderful five-star review on iTunes. And another review that I want to give a quick shout out to is one of my personal private coaching clients, Mr. Kofi Ankama. And Kofi says, great podcast. I've been following the podcast since episode 00 and I haven't missed one. DeRay, my brother, keep inspiring. You have something great on your hands. Kofi, thank you for such an amazing review. And thanks to everyone who's left a review for the Before the Man's podcast. I mean, you guys are the reason why people are discovering this podcast every single day. You guys are the reason that we're at 101 episodes. So if you haven't yet left a review, head over to the podcasting app of your choice and leave us a review, an honest review. I love the feedback and I love, love giving shout outs on the podcast. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into the tip of the week. DeRay's tip of the week. Okay, so it is tax season. And when this episode officially airs, it is just a few days away from the actual deadline to file your taxes. So guys, the tip of the week this week is actually going to be really, really quick in the sense that there are many people that should be on your real estate team, including your CPA and or your tax accountants. Now, I would suggest that this person and any other person on your team, really, as many people as you can as possible, right? So your real estate agent, your attorney, but more specifically, because it's tax season and again, filing is right around the corner, I would always suggest that this team member has more than sufficient knowledge in real estate, meaning that this person not only has experience filing taxes for real estate investors, but is an actual real estate investor themselves. Now, this is not going to guarantee that you get all the deductions. This is not going to even guarantee that they're going to file your taxes correctly. But what this does do is give you a much, much, much better percentage, much higher odds of making sure you're filing your taxes correctly, making sure that you're getting all the possible deductions and that whoever it is that is filing your taxes is keeping up with the current changes in the tax law. So I try to make sure that every single person, and it's not 100%, but I try to make sure that it's as close as possible to 100%. Every single person on my team is a real estate investor because there's a big difference between an attorney who invests in real estate and an attorney who doesn't invest in real estate. There's a big difference between a lender who works with real estate investors versus a lender who works with first-time home buyers. Most of us, when we jump into this, we think, oh, it's all the same. I know I have a friend who knows somebody who's in the lending business, or I have a friend who's an agent, right? 99% of agents do not work with investors. 99% of agents work with homeowners or potential homeowners. And working with this type of agent could set you back tremendously in terms of 
what they're looking for and what you're looking for, like their criteria and the criteria of a typical home buyer is so different from the criteria of a real estate investor. So in order to be effective and to be efficient and also to quote unquote stick to code as those get updated and changed every so often, I suggest that all of your team members, as many as possible, should be real estate investors or should cater at the very minimum to real estate investors. If any agent, lender, or anybody else on your team tells you that they cater to both homeowners and investors, please run the other way. Because in fact, those people have no niche and they actually aren't good at a whole lot and they cater to nobody. Same thing with a buyer's agent versus a seller's agent. If an agent tells you that their expertise is both on the buying side and the selling side, nine times out of 10, they have no expertise whatsoever. You'll often find that the best agents cater to either buyers or sellers. Now, I'm picking on agents right now, but you guys get the picture. This goes for every single member of your team. Make sure that your team members specialize in the exact thing that you do. So with that being said, let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. We have on today's show, Mrs. Panji Barnes. Panji, how's it going today? It's good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing amazing. And before we get into the meat and potatoes of this show, I just kind of want to give our listeners a little bit of a background on you and who you are. And let's kind of figure out how you even began this journey, how you began this entrepreneurial real estate journey. Like take us back to maybe, I think it was like 05 or 04 and just kind of kind of run us through that and tell us what your mindset was and what you were thinking and how you kind of stumbled upon this whole real estate realm. So I started in 2005 um, as a college student. I think I was in my junior year and I was actually, I had a little small eBay business that I was um, doing. And at that time, the real estate market was like booming. So I started seeing like TLC and HGTV, all these other channels having these flip this house show. And so I was like fascinated by it. I was like obsessed, like most Americans were watching this show. And I was thinking, wow, they make 100K and they just put carpet in and new paint on the walls. So I was thinking, you know, I can do this too. So me and my husband, we got in touch with a loan officer. At that time, everybody was a loan officer, right? Like everybody's brother or sister had a mortgage broker license too. So we wind up getting pre-approved and we started shopping for a condo. That was our first purchase. It took us a while to get it because at that time, everything was going on the contract so quickly. So we finally settled on a two-bedroom, one-bath condo in Chicago. It didn't need a lot of work, but we did do some small upgrades to it. So we bought it with the intention of flipping the property. So we bought the property and we lived in it for like a year. I was still staying off in Carbondale, which is like maybe four hours from there. So it was kind of like empty. We would, I would come home and break and stay in it. But so we bought the property, we're paying the assessments and everything. And we did some small upgrades. Um, the kitchen cabinets were great, but we did put a granite countertop on it. And my husband did some tiling on the kitchen floor and the bathroom. So anyway, a year later, we decided to sell the property. I sold the property and I was thinking, I was excited because I was thinking, okay, I'm going to at least make, you know, maybe um, ten dollars to $15,000 in profit. And then my attorney called us on the day of closing and he says, I need you to come down here and bring a check for $1,100 <laughs> because you had a special assessment for 
checkpointing a roof and a boiler system. So it was the most devastating day in my real estate career, having to actually cough up $1,100. We scraped that up to come down there. Otherwise, we couldn't close the deal. So yeah, I learned a hard lesson on my first trip. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, Panji, let's, I kind of want to get into your mindset a little bit more because most people don't do what you've done. I mean, you think about how many millions of people watch these HDT. I've never watched a single one of those shows in my life, okay. by the way. But you think of how many millions of people watch these shows and most people are just like, oh, that's cool. Or, oh, that's awesome. Or maybe one day I'll do that. I mean, what was it? What kind of triggered you? Were, were you in a position in which you were like, man, I have a whole bunch of capital to just kind of give out? Were you in a position to where you're like, I have no capital, but I need to make some money? Were you? Was your husband a major yeah. influence in this? Was he kind of already going towards real estate? Like what kind of triggered everything for you? No, I mean, he wasn't going towards real estate. I kind of dragged him into it. But no, that's the thing. I was really hungry. So I I was like a starving college kid, right? So I didn't have a lot of money. But the thing about 2005, it was 100% financing. (laughs) So to get into real estate back then, all you needed was are you breathing? Do you have a pulse? And can you sign documents? And that was pretty much it. And here, here's a loan for a million dollars. So like, it was crazy back then. I remember giving the loan officer uh, my paperwork from my PayPal to show all the money I was making from like my eBay as proof of like income for the mortgage. So it was a completely, that would never go, that would never fly these days. So (laughs) it was a completely different thing back then. So yeah, I was just like hungry for money. I was just thinking like, okay, I could flip this property and I'm going to be rich. So it was very naive, but like I'm, I'm 20 looking at TV and thinking that was real. So yeah. I love that. I love that. So what, what happened next? Did you go on and did you, were you, were, did you have a bad taste in your mouth after that? You were like, you know, I don't want to do real estate anymore. This is crazy. Did you go find a mentor? Like what was the very next step for you? Okay. So I pretty much found myself in a trap because when I bought that one and I held it for a year, we also bought another one. So in my mind, I saw another property come on the market inside my building and I begged my husband again and I'm like, we got to buy this one because, you know, we got buy this, we'll really be rich, right? So at the time, um, like I said, I had no idea about special assessments. So I have, was already under contract for that one when I sold that one. So I was kind of stuck with the second condo. But the good thing about it with the special assessment, because I was buying it from a bank and it was a foreclosure, they paid the special assessment and I got to, you know, reap the, the benefit of not having to, to pay that. So with this one, we actually made a profit. And then it was so much better. So yeah, I really just was basically, if I didn't have that second one, I may have not, you know, went and delved into real estate as much, but thank God I had the second one because it it helped my confidence level. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So were you, I mean, what what else were you doing at the time? I mean, I know you had the eBay store going, but was your primary focus that store? Was it what you majored in in college? Was it real estate? And when did it start becoming, it probably started like, you know, 80 percent this and then 20% real estate. And eventually you got to maybe 100% real estate to where you are today. But what was kind of going on at the time? And then what, what made you start thinking like, maybe I should just do this full time? Okay, so it's like it's a it's definitely been a journey to get to where I am today where I'm just full time doing real estate because I did real estate and I was I then once I did real estate I was flipping properties and then like in 2008 I opened my own uh, staging company. So I actually was staging properties as well as renting furniture. So I actually had a big warehouse in an office 
and I was renting furniture to people, to investors and to home buyers that, you know, wanted to basically make their house look much better for selling purposes. So I was doing that and I love that. And the reason why I got into that is because I was flipping properties and the realtors would always ask like, who, who stays this property? Like this looks amazing. And I also like interior design. So it was a perfect, it went hand in hand with real estate. But, you know, I did that business for maybe two and a half years before I got out of that business because I got pregnant and I just didn't have a good lease on my, you know, employees and different things like that. So I just wasn't really good with the logistics of it um, once I got pregnant because I couldn't be as hands-on as possible. So I learned a lot of lessons from that entrepreneurial, you know, path. But so after I got done with my business, I took a year off and then I went to law school. And I went to law school because like my parents always wanted me to be attorney and I was like okay I can do this real estate thing and I can be a lawyer or whatever maybe I'll be a real estate attorney I can do my own closing so I got into um, to law school and I just I was there for like a year but like you could tell my heart wasn't in it and I was doing it to please people in my you know my family and things like that I think the turning point was like I would be studying with my study group in law school and they would be like you're never paying attention you're always looking at real estate websites <laughs> so for me it was like I don't want to do this as a living. I really want to do real estate. So that was like when I kind of really went full on into actually being a real estate investor. Because at the time we were only doing flips. So in 2012, once I finished law school, we actually started doing buy and holds. And that's when I kind of fell in love with the idea of being a landlord. So that was, so I've only been a landlord for like six years. And then I was doing flipping prior to all that. Now I do still do like one flip a year along with my um, rentals. So. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So talk about your support system, because I know that you said you have, and this is most people's situation. So I think a lot of the listeners are going to be, be able to relate when you have these notions and you have these people in your corner, but they have this idea of who you are or who you're going to be. And, you know, they want you to be this attorney. They want you to go down this path and you're going down a path that's not really proven that most people don't you know, can't make sense of. So talk about your support system and how, you know, maybe you had trials and tribulations through that period. And you're like, look, mom, look, dad, or look, husband, like this works. This is what I want to do. Or maybe they were like, yeah, this is amazing. Like go for it. Like, what, what was that like? So my husband's very supportive, like through all my little businesses or whatever I wanted to do. My husband's been very supportive. And he always told me like, you should just do real estate full time. It's my parents and, you know, other relatives that are like, well, they didn't take it seriously. They were like, I mean, are you making, what are you doing all day? <laughs> that was the question all that. What are you doing all day? So <laughs> once I got that, those out of my head and everything, and once they, I start, then I started taking my parents and showing them like flips and showing them rental properties and things like that. Then they took it seriously. But I'm sure a lot of people struggle with, you know, having a nine to five and having that structured job to prove to people that you're actually being productive and you're successful. And you just kind of got to get that out your head because when the money starts flowing and you're happy, and you're not tied down to a nine to five, believe me, it's much easier to, you know, to embrace the lifestyle of a real estate investor full time. So. I love it. I love it. Let's travel down your path a little bit further, Panji. Let's talk about maybe a later time in life where you had failed. I mean, how has failure, maybe just a parent failure, because I don't think failure is actually failure. I think failure is feedback and then you're supposed to course correct. But how has failure uh, impacted your life? How has it set you up for later success? Yeah, I mean, like, I, th- I think that my business just kind of taught me failing in my business. And I think that just taught me to keep going. Even like also when you're a real estate investor, you're going to have some bad tenants. Okay. Sometimes you're going to get it wrong. You're going to pick the wrong tenant. 
you got to just keep going. You like at the end of the day, that property is yours and that tenant will leave. That's not a forever situation. I think so many people fail in real estate. And the reason why is sometimes I'll, you know, encounter people that are like, you're in real estate and they have that, you know, like negative look on their face because they're like, well, that's, you know, I lost money and I lost my property. And, it, you know, these tenants are horrible because they had that one bad experience or maybe two bad experiences. And they're like, this doesn't work. This is not proven. I don't know how people make money from this. And it's just not true. So you cannot get wrapped up in the fact that, you know, you picked one bad tenant evict them and move on or do cash your keys or whatever you have to do and move on from the situation and just learn from it, scream better and learn and listen to your intuition. A lot of times we, you know, ignore red flags from these tenants because we're so anxious to rent the place. But I definitely implore people to take your time and just, you know, take your time, maybe read some books on screening and you know, that, that should help. And also if you're not comfortable, just hire a, a property manager to do it or even a, a realtor to, you know, help you along with the process. So. I love that. And you know, you talk about some of these concepts that makes, makes me kind of kind of envision the market that you're in. You're talking about cash for keys and our, some of our listeners are probably like, what's that? So can maybe explain that what's cash okay. for keys. And, uh, I, I don't think that you need that for, for every market, but I think that, yeah. you know, in certain classes, you're going to definitely want to implement something like that. So explain that really quick. Okay, so Chicago is very um, tenant friendly. So we ha we use what a technique here called Castro Keys. And that's basically when you are a tenant is behind, you would like for them to move, they refuse to move, it's too expensive to do the eviction process, or too time consuming. And so what you'll do is you offer them a lump sum payment in exchange for them leaving. Now when you do this, you want to make sure an attorney does this, you don't want to go on Google and do um, a, get a document from there, you want to make sure all your legal bases are covered. Because because that tenant could come back and still try to assert some type of rights. So I definitely think you should uh, seek an attorney, have them draw papers, basically just saying that they, you know, forfeit all rights to the property and that you will pay them um, a lump sum of cash. And you basically will negotiate with the tenant what that will be. And you don't give the money until that tenant is actually moved out fully. So that's what cash for keys is. And it works here in Chicago because the process can take five or six months here. Judges are extremely sympathetic. Um, if it's wintertime, good luck. Because they, they basically put a moratorium on you for actually kicking people out because they just feel bad. They don't want the, the, you know, the people to be homeless in the wintertime. So it can be very difficult in, in, in Chicago to evict someone. Oh. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the last episode we, we aired, and I'm, I know this episode is probably not going to come out for another few weeks, but the last episode that was actually aired as of the time of this recording was talking about uh, bad tenants and tenant horror stories. And, you know, a lot of these these tenant-friendly uh, tenant friendly states, it's almost like you're at their whims. And I know I'm in Texas and we're in a landlord-friendly state. I mean, it doesn't matter what the tenant says. It doesn't matter what excuse they have. It doesn't matter what time of month, what type of year, what time of year it is. If they can't prove that they paid rent, they're getting evicted. I envy so. you. I mean, there are times that I, I talk to my husband. I'm like, I'm just ready to take our business to over the next border because, you know, Indiana is a boarding state and they're a, a tenant, I mean, a landlord friendly state. And they are, I'm very tempted. The only thing is just the the rates that I get in Chicago for, um, for rentals can't even compare in Indiana. So that's why I stay in Chicago. But yeah, Indiana is very tempting sometimes. Yeah. So, so it, guys, listen up. I mean, there are pros and cons to each market. Just because there's there's a pro that you may think is amazing, it may, it may not outweigh the pro that's currently in your market. So, I love that you're able to highlight on that. Now, let's again, let's kind of walk through your. Let's get 
almost to present day in the past five years now. I mean, we've talked about the early stages of your journey and we're progressing down your path and you started fixing and flipping and then you started getting into rentals and maybe doing about a, a flip a month. And I mean, I flip a year. And now that you've had this experience, you've had the ups and downs, you've probably had sleepless nights, you've probably had amazing days. What new belief, what new behavior or habit has maybe most improved your life in the past five years? Um, I just, I'm making, at this point, I'm setting up systems as I'm growing because I think it's really important to the, you know, you want to be able to like maximize your time and as far as, uh, you know, tenant calls and things like that. So what I do when I'm rehabbing now is I'm making sure there's a lot of uniformity in my rentals. So like if this faucet works, I'm not going to deviate and get another faucet if that countertop works or that appliance works. So basically I try to make sure that, you know, even the paint colors, like all my, you know, rentals have the same paint color, all the same fixtures um, as far as flooring, same laminate flooring. So I think systems are really important um, to put in place and it just helps you be more expedient when you're rehabbing instead of you trying to figure out, you know, okay, what, especially when it comes to repair requests, if you already know, you know, what, the issue is with this particular thing, then you can go over there and, and pinpoint it really quickly. If you have 12 different, you know, fixtures or, you know, products in your property, it can make it more difficult to just, you know, make sure that you're saving money and that you are maximizing the, you know, the amount of time that you have. Systems are really important. Even just making sure that you have that communication level with tenants, you can like set up an app to like get all your tenant repair requests on your phone and that can help you be more organized. So yeah, systems are kind of like what I've been improving on for the last six years. Nice, nice. So speaking of systems, how are you, what's your, how, what's your favorite way of generating leads? At this point, I really do use MLS. And sometimes my realtor will text me or call me and tell me if she has like a pocket listing or she knows something else, you know, that's coming on the market soon. I do have a couple wholesalers that will call me and tell me about different things that, you know, that they have and I'll check it out. But for the most part, uh, most of my purchases have been on the MLS. So. Gotcha. And what, yeah. what are you typically looking for? Like what's your um, sweet spot? I love single families, to be honest. I feel like my tenants stay much longer. And then I feel like they have like a home ownership um, mindset. Like they don't mind taking care. So they will take care of the landscaping. They will do change the filter in the furnace, you know, change their light bulbs and different things like that. I feel like the multifamily tenants, a lot more hands on um, where they don't want to do as much. So I, and I just feel like my average single family tenant will stay for four years, whereas um, the multifamily two years. So yeah, single families yeah. are, and I like, like, three bedroom, two bath. So I like to stay in that range. I do have two bedrooms, but I like the three bedroom. And um, as far as flips, I like just single family properties that are brick, three bedrooms or more and a garage or at least some off street parking because in Chicago parking is really in demand. So those are the kind of things I look for. Nice, nice, nice. So I want to really quickly get into mindset because I think that's a major, that's an important factor, especially through your success. When you maybe feel overwhelmed or unfocused, or maybe you've just lost focus temporarily, what do you, what do you do to just kind of help you get back in alignment? And if it helps, what questions do you ask yourself? Well, I think you can, you know, reading books, real estate books can help, you know, you overcome that or even living, listening to podcasts can, cause I know some 
you know, when landlords will reach out to me when they're first getting started and they have like a nightmare tenant or some situation. And I definitely tell them to do that. But I think that um, in my situation, having a partner has been key. Because when I'm feeling like, you know, discouraged about a situation or things like that, it's great because my husband can kind of like shift my mindset and kind of give me some of another outlook on it. So I think having a partner is great because you don't carry the load. I feel like sometimes you may be tired and this person can pick it up or sometimes he's fatigued with it and then I can, you know, keep the ball rolling. So I think if you can, having a partner is really, really important. Um, if you can get your spouse or partner to get on board with you, it's great. That's recommended? Yes, highly recommended. <laughs> okay. So when, I, when you look at partnerships, even just partnerships in general, what I guess, do you, and I know this may not be applied to your specific situation, but just in general, what are you looking for in a partner? Like, I know that you have certain strengths and your husband may have certain strengths. How does that business work in the sense that, you know, you're, you're focusing on this or he's focusing on that. And how do you got, how do you guys even figure out that dichotomy just to begin with? Um, just basically going with your strengths and weaknesses. I think that even when I talk about in my book about ha- having a partner, you know, just like a business partner with real estate. Um, Just making sure that that person brings something to the table that you're lacking. Like, you know, I I think that if you're lacking finances, you shouldn't go find a partner who's also lacking finances. Like, that doesn't make sense. So you need to make sure, like, if you're strong on, like, I know how to find a really good deal and I know contractors. And this person has some retirement money that they want to invest or, you know, maybe they had an inheritance or something they want to invest. I think that's a great, you know, combination. If you're a person that has money and you really want to get in real estate and you know someone that is a contractor, that's a great partnership. So just making sure that basically you guys, you know, are feeding off of each other's weaknesses and strengths. But yeah, for me and my husband, he is um, very hands-on, meaning that he likes to do some of the repairs, even though (laughs) I think that he could just, you know, I would prefer that he would just, you know, pay a contractor, but he kind of likes to do some of these repairs. So he's more of a hands-on type of person, but I'm like more of the, I'll go look at the properties and I'll take a video and then he just trusts my judgment and, you know, we'll write up the offer. And then also I, I keep track of like the money. So, you know, I'll make sure that we're on budget and stuff like that. So yeah, that's kind of how our partnership works. And he's full-time as well with you, right? Now he has a job, but he will still say, well, you know, I'm free on this week because he has like a pretty easy work schedule. So he will, when he has some time off, he'll try to do stuff, but uh, (laughs) it's not necessary. It's something that he just wants. I guess he just likes to do it. It makes him feel busy. So that's amazing. I love that. I love that. I love that flexibility. So let's, let's talk about your area of expertise. I mean, you mentioned this book and before we even get into what the book is about, I mean, what made you decide to write a book? That is a major feat. Why did you Why did you write a book? How did you even get the idea to write a book? And then we'll talk about the book a little bit more. So I wrote the book because I have siblings. I have two brothers that are younger than me, like maybe between six and nine years younger than me. So they're in their 20s and they have friends and their friends are always asking me like, how do you get into real estate? Can you mentor me? You know, they're just very curious. And so, you know, I wrote the book because I wanted to speak to millennials. I feel like Obviously, there are a ton of real estate books out there, but like I just wanted to make sure that I was targeting a particular demographic and I was speaking their language and inspiring them to get into real estate and kind of answering a lot of the questions as well as talking about my pitfalls. 
So that's what the book was inspired from to just get other people to, you know, consider real estate investing as a career or just something to do something to accumulate while you have your full-time job just so you can have additional income and also a way to pass generational wealth down. You can't pass your job now, but you can definitely pass real estate down. So how long did it take you to write the book? It took me a month to write the book. Wow. So you were disciplined. I didn't even go to Christmas dinner. I told my husband <laughs> to go to Christmas dinner with the children and I had to get it out on pen and paper. So nothing was stopping me. I'm like, I have to get it out. I can't go. So. Man, man. So did you, you just blocked out time and you were just like from, you know, eight to Night time. Yeah. And wow. I'm nocturnal anyway. Like I'm up at night. That's, that's, you know, that's the highlight of my day is nighttime. Once I get my children down. So yeah, just basically got it done at night. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. So tell us, what's the title of the book? And tell us a little bit about the book, what some of the listeners can expect if they, if they decide to pick the book. Um, the title of the book is Real Estate and Chill. It's a play off of Netflix and Chill. Like I said, I'm trying to reach this particular demographic of millennials. And then the book is uh, just basically kind of like a hand-holding book to talk about the process of financing and finding, you know, a good realtor to work with and screening the property and screening tenants and uh, materials that you should buy and just some of the do's and don'ts with property management. So things like that. I, I talk about a lot of my experiences, you know, befriending tenants when you should not be, you know, having, you know, you shouldn't be forming friendships with your tenants. So I just talk about like my journey and, you know, some of the mistakes that I made so that other people don't have to make them. So, yeah. Highlight one of, and I don't want you to give away too much in the book, but just highlight one of your mistakes that you talked about in the book that, you know, maybe the listeners can take away something from and learn from in our, in our conversation really quick. Well, like for instance, I um, had a tenant, this was probably my second year of being a landlord and she was really nice. I'm a school teacher and we really hit it off and we, you know, kind of like formed a friendship. But the problem was, is that she started to move people into the property and so then it caused more wear and tear on the property. Um, she wasn't keeping the property up. When we went to do an inspection later on, we found that, you know, it was like filthy in the property because she would always talk to me like outside or texting me. So I never really went in. She would just come out and give me the rent money. And when I would ask her like, hey, is everything okay? And she, she would always say, yeah, everything is good. You're good. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, she's a good tenant because she's paying all the time. And I never had any issues with her being late or anything like that. And she says the property is good. So lessons that I will take away from that is, first of all, you should not be going. I do quarterly inspections. So you should be going in your property every three months to check on your property. This is how you make sure that it's not being trashed. That's what I took away from that lesson. Also, I found it difficult to actually, you know, be objective and, and express myself and explain to her different things that she shouldn't be doing because I have this friendship with her. And yep. so that's why I warn against having these friendships because once you do that, now you've blurred the lines and you cannot be as, you can't enforce your rules like you would with a normal tenant because now you feel like she's your friend. So that's kind of the lesson that I learned. I talk about that in the book. Nice, nice, nice. And you're probably one of the most hands-on landlords I have um, interviewed on the show. So I just want to kind of talk about, because as I mentioned earlier, this is a lifestyle design podcast. You are living your lifestyle design. There's nothing that you're doing that you don't want to do. So I don't want people to think that, you know, to in order to live their perfect lifestyle or their lifestyle design, they have to automatically put systems in place and people in place and be at the top and not do anything and just look at deals and sign up. I mean, 
you're living your ultimate lifestyle and you're hands-on. I mean, you talk about quarterly inspections that you're doing yourself. You mentioned that you're going to pick up rent money yourself. I mean, you're talking about a lot of things that you're doing on the ground. So maybe talk about your lifestyle design and, and why you've chosen this path and what do you like so much about this? Is it the human face-to-face interaction? Like just kind of touch on that a little bit more. Okay, so I don't pick up rent money anymore. I use <laughs> mail or cash app. I don't do that anymore. When I first got started, I just like I didn't know any better. But I don't do that at all anymore. But my husband does the court inspections. If he's busy, what we'll do is we'll send our handyman in, which is, you know, another point. Your handyman should be like your eyes and ears. They should report back to you what's going on. But yeah, like when I do have inspections as far as Section 8, because I do do a lot of Section 8, I am there. I am present because I like to actually be there when the inspector is going through so I can see what the repairs are. But yeah, I think that it's really important that they kind of feel your presence. I feel like people are more respectful to your own property. And I feel like it's more personable, like as opposed to you. Now, once, I mean, once the more I grow, this probably won't be as possible. But for now, I feel like people respect you more. They can see you and they know you and, you know, you just kind of have that relationship. So just at least a cordial relationship, not friends, but just a cordial relationship and just making sure that you're present so that they know that, hey, I can't bring a family of five into my property because my, my landlord comes by and she does checks. So I think that's important. People think, like I said, that because this person pays rent, that everything is all good. They could be, they could be running like a, a kennel in your property. They could be like moving all 10 of their relatives. I mean, you just never know. So you have to inspect your property. I've had the worst experiences with this though. Yeah, I'm big on inspections. You have two kids, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Two kids. Okay. So walk us through maybe a typical day of yours. And I know that you're, you're an entrepreneur, so you're able to do things for your kids and spend time with your kids in which most parents are not able to do. And your kids see that like, hey, like mom is able to come to lunch and she's able to do this and she's able to do that, whereas everybody else's parents aren't. So talk about a typical day in your world and what you're doing on the real estate end, on the business end, and how you're supporting your husband and your kids and your family and just a typical day of what you would normally do. So um, typically, I'll get up and get the kids ready for school. I'm able to go to yoga after I drop them off, or I can come home and take a nap, go to the grocery store, you know, look on my app to see if there have been any tenant requests or things like that. It's a pretty good day of leisure if I want to go shopping, if I want to get a massage. Yeah, I, we've been able to create a really good lifestyle so that I'm, I'm able to be present for my children. So, you know, dinner is ready for them. We don't have to get any fast food or anything like that. I can cook everything. And then I'm able to go to the PTA meetings. I go to all the field trips, cooking lessons, any type of volunteering at the school. I'm available. Um, as far as the children's extracurricular activities, they have Spanish lessons on Sunday where the tutor comes to our house. Also, the children take um, jujitsu. So on Saturdays, we do that. So, you know, we're able to have, you know, a pretty comfortable lifestyle and um, present. Yeah, I, I really, I really love that because I, I always wanted to be like a hands-on mom. I didn't want to be one of those parents that they only saw in the evening time when we got home from work and you only get a couple hours because the children have to go to bed to, you know, go to school the next day. So, yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. Beautifully said. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? And this uh, can't be your book. Uh, millionaire, The Millionaire Next Door. I love that book. Nice, nice. What is that about really quick for the listeners who haven't heard of it? Oh, so it's a book where the author interviewed about 50 to 
or maybe more millionaires. And basically he uh, surveyed them and he also kind of like shadowed them to see their lifestyle. And in the book, he just highlights how most of these millionaires live in like your regular suburbs of, you know, America. They drive, you know, regular cars. They live in small, you know, modest homes, but they have tons of millions. And I think it's just really, you know, pushed into perspective because we live in such a consumerism, you know, uh, world where you think that if somebody is wearing all of their wealth that they're really wealthy and so this book just kind of like once you it kind of helps you kind of like basically understand that you don't have to be as flashy you can you know your wealth is better off in your bank and investing it or you know buying real estate or buying stock or you know investing in a business so that's what I liked about this book just basically kind of highlights the real rich people in America and not the ones that are wearing all their wealth love it love it love it what do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed and i know we touched on this a little bit but you know if you have any anything to add to that yeah i just like the freedom that it gives me you know i I feel like you know i'm able to be present for my family and i'm also able to you know do things for me to you know improve things that i want to improve by myself so anything as far as exercise or if i want to take additional classes or just reading uh, traveling, things like that. So that's what I like about the lifestyle. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Um, some of the sacrifices, I will say early on in our real estate investing, we did downsize our house. And we even down, I had a luxury car at the time. We actually got rid of it and got a, you know, just basic car. So those were some of the sacrifices that we were willing to make in order to accumulate enough money to buy more properties. So. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? And I think I know the answer to this one. My husband. <laughs> yeah, my husband, because he's been really supportive and he, he just and loves it and embraces the real estate just as much as I do. So this is his passion as well as my passion. So it yeah, it just makes it work. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? We touched on this earlier, but I think that everyone, um, people around me that I see that will express to me that they're very interested in investing in real estate, they're not willing to make the sacrifice. So they will, they would rather, you know, pay thousands of dollars in rent instead of just finding something that's like more modest or they would rather drive a really expensive fancy car instead of getting something more modest. I think that that delayed gratification is missing in a lot of people. They want it now and they want to look like they're rich instead of actually being rich. So I, I think that's what stops a lot of people. They they would rather wear it and look like it as opposed to actually getting down to nitty gritty and making those sacrifices. Yeah. So Love it, love it, love it. Well, Panji, like I said, this has been an amazing podcast episode. I've learned so much about you and your values and your story. And this is this has been one for the book. So thank you so much for the value that you've offered. If the listeners kind of want to get to know a little bit more about you, reach out to you, ask you a few questions, drop in all your links here and kind of tell us where we can find you and, and kind of connect with you. Okay, so you can follow me on Instagram at Real Estate and Chill. You can also follow me on YouTube, uh, Real Estate and Chill as well. And my book is Real Estate and Chill. On It's on Amazon.com. It's also iTunes if you want to do audio. It's also on Amazon Audio. And it's on Barnes and Noble as well. And then also I have a Facebook page, Real Estate and Chill. So nice, you can nice, use nice. all those platforms. 
Nice. And listeners, all the links to all those, everything that just mentioned on the show will be in the show notes. So definitely check that out. And I'll be checking some of that out as well. So again, Hanji, thank you for all the value that you provide uh, to our community, to everybody out there that's kind of looking for this financial freedom to looking to get into the real estate. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. Thank you so much.